let's open our Bibles or click in your phone, whatever the case may be, to the book of James. Uh, We're going to look at the first 13 verses of the second chapter today uh, in a uh, uh, 1 through 3. I want you to be 1 through 13. So sorry, guys. We're going to go a little bit further than 3. And uh, the message title is The Folly of Favoritism. It could have been the problem of partiality. I just, you know, this is what came out when I was thinking about it and praying over it. So let's take our hearts to the Lord, shall we? Uh, God, once again, we just say thank you for gathering us together, Lord. We know that uh, you have ordained from the, before the foundations of the earth that we would be here today. And so I just pray, God, that you would open our hearts, open our minds, speak to us as only you can. Uh, Lord, that you would move and minister and, and touch us in that tangible way, Lord, whereby we just uh, realize, Lord, there's just no uh, uh, other way around it, but that we've encountered you today and you've made a difference in our hearts, God. And so may the seed of your word take forth, uh, take root and bring forth fruit for your glory. We'll give you praise in Jesus' name. And everybody say, amen. Amen. Well, listen, my reception of God's word is made manifest in my response to God's word. The way I receive God's word will become evident in the way that I respond to God's word. And that's really the life lesson that James has just rehearsed with us in this uh, last portion of chapter one, that if my observation of God's word or in God's word uh, never translates into an application of God's word. I make an observation, but never it never becomes application. Well, then it's not doing me any good. And it doesn't matter how much I study it. doesn't matter uh, how accurately I can quote it or how well I think that I know it. Now, as the curtain draws back on chapter 2, James is going to continue to build upon that principle, but he zeroes in on a specific point, the specific point of partiality or favoritism. In particular, uh, the way that we might be inclined to treat someone who is rich as opposed to the way we would treat someone who is poor. And so you see the scales out here in your mind's eye, and he throws in the balance on the one side. There's two individuals that come to visit your church on the same day, radically opposite ends of the uh, social strata. And uh, so one side of the scale someone who's rich. The other side of the scale, someone who is poor. And he highlights the sinful tendency that we have as humanity to show this great respect toward the rich man while simultaneously just having kind of this utter disregard for the poor man. And ultimately, what he wants us to know is that we're to consistently show the same courtesy toward, have the same compassion for everyone alike. Listen, it doesn't matter who the individual may be or upon what rung of the social ladder they may stand. There's someone, listen to me, there's someone whom either Christ lives in, yes, or they are someone for that Christ has died for, amen? And so that should impact and equalize how we treat them. And so let's turn our attention uh, to the very first verse of James chapter 2 where we read, my brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. That is, there should never be any prejudice or discrimination associated with or linked to your or my life as a believer. 
when he says, do not hold the faith of, now we could also understand that to say, you know, your belief in. The idea is not to taint or to contaminate our belief in Jesus Christ through prejudice or partiality. Now, guys, obviously, we are going to spend the lion's share of our time today through this exhortation and then the uh, preceding uh, illustration that James gives us on this point. But before we kind of do our deep dive, I want you to notice something that he says here that we almost have this tendency to, to, to just kind of read in passing. But it's a powerful point that deserves our time and attention. He says, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then notice these next words, the Lord of glory. Now, of course, if uh, you'll notice here, the words the Lord before of glory are in italics. And now what that means is that uh, the translator added them for clarification, uh, which in this case is completely appropriate because the grammatical phrasing makes it clear that the the glory uh, looks back to the Lord Jesus Christ. But more literally, it's just, uh, you know, uh, Jesus Christ, uh, our Lord Jesus Christ, of glory or the glory. Here's what I want you to understand. James is pointing to Jesus as the divine glory, the full manifestation of the divine presence and majesty. It's an unmistakable reference to the fullness of deity. It's what the Jews of ancient times referred to as the Shekinah or the glory of God. You remember Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 in speaking of Jesus it says who being the brightness of his, that is God the Father, being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Jesus, the Lord of glory, who transforms you from glory to greater glory, the fullness of the Godhead bodily, who has loved you and given himself for you. Family, this is the wonder the beauty and the mystery of the message of the gospel. That God, veiled in human flesh, would lay down his life upon the altar of the cross so that you and I might have life by God's grace through faith in him. Praise God. You say, now how does that work? Listen, I have no idea. I I wish I knew. What I can tell you is that God has established what's called a federal headship of man or you understand man is just short for mankind not not male or I should say mankind is short for humankind not male kind sometimes today in our culture people have that confused mankind that seems gender specific no it's just humankind okay it's short for humankind I just want to make that kind of clear for us but God has established this federal headship of man, just like our government is a federal government. One man, by the people, for the people. 
So that it was by one man, right? His name was Adam, that sin came into the world. And Paul touches on this in Romans chapter 5. And through that sin, death spread to all uh, because in Adam all sinned. And what that means is that Adam had a sin nature once he sinned. And because of that, he could not pass on what he no longer had. In other words, now that he had a sin nature, he couldn't give someone a sinless nature through his lineage. Does that make sense? But Jesus isn't of the lineage of Adam. He was conceived of a virgin through the power of the Holy Spirit. God is his father. Being born of Mary, he's fully man. Uh, being born of God, he's fully God. And therefore, he had no sin nature. And being without sin, he was qualified to atone or to make amends for the sin of the world. And here's the principle in play there. For if by one man sin can enter the world, then through one man the sin of the world can be forgiven. Amen? We thank God for that. But this is why the Bible teaches that we must be born again. You know, we've all been born once through the natural process. But Jesus taught us in John chapter 3 that we must be born again through a supernatural process of the Spirit of God through faith in, in Jesus Christ and His work for us upon the cross. In other words, that which was born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit and all of that to say that James making clear here in no uncertain terms that Jesus Christ is God he is the glory and the exhortation is to not hold our faith in him in partiality or with partiality that is don't contaminate your reflection of who he is through prejudice and favoritism because that's not who he is God is not a respecter of persons. You know that when Jesus was upon the earth, that was one of the things that even his enemies made note of. You remember the Pharisees, they were there, they were trying to entangle him, they were trying to entrap him in his words, and they said, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth, nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of man. Now that didn't mean we know that Jesus cared for people, but what that was saying, what they were, were communicating, was that Jesus never played favorites. He didn't make exceptions for or allow himself to be influenced by anyone just because they were rich or just because they were poor, but they were saying, Jesus, you treat everyone the same. Everyone is on equal footing before God, you understand? And this would be, ladies and gentlemen, revolutionary teaching for James's readers. Because, listen, I don't know what you think um, of the social or ethnic or class distinctions in our day, but I promise you that it's nothing compared to what it was in James's day. Uh, James wrote to an incredibly 
partial age. It was filled with prejudice based upon nationality, ethnicity, uh, where you were maybe at economically, religious background. People were permanently categorized and branded by the fact that they were male or female. All these things made for different opportunities or the lack thereof, the way you would be treated, male or female, Jew, Gentile, slave or free. But James is saying what Paul would later pin as well, that Jesus breaks down those barriers and he sets us all equally before him. We read in Galatians chapter 3, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave, free, male or female, you are all one in Christ. Now in other words, he's not saying we don't have roles and responsibilities, he's saying that we're equally children of God. You see what I'm saying? Now you might write it down, you can look it up later, it's Acts chapter 10, that's where Peter learned this same lesson. So, the exhortation, don't show discrimination. Now, James offers an illustration of this truth. So you're with me. Let's turn our attention to verse 2. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, look, you just stand over there, or you sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Well, you know, this is pretty easy to see in our mind's eye, isn't it? I mean, here he is, Elon Musk, you know, and he comes uh, driving up in his high-performance Tesla. He gets out of his car, and he's dressed to the nines for this, you know, red carpet kind of uh, showing, and then someone else just kind of gets dropped off from the homeless shelter at the same time. And, uh, you know, how we react, how we respond toward these guys is going to demonstrate the reality of what's happening in our hearts. You can follow that flow, can't you? Now, listen, there's no denying. There's no uh, kind of uh, refusing the fact that we're all susceptible. We're all somewhat vulnerable. We're all guilty uh, to some degree or another of treating people differently depending on how we view them outwardly. But generally speaking, the bitter irony is that the people we try and impress the most are generally the ones who care about us the least. While the people who would really be open to receiving from us are the ones that we think we don't have time for. You know, we're, we're looking for the captain of the football team when we should be looking for the kid sitting by himself in the lunchroom, you understand. And James is going to lean into that in, in just a minute. 
But he talks here about these gold rings and extravagant clothes. This was a measure of wealth uh, in the ancient world. Guys, there were even shops uh, there in Rome and throughout, scattered throughout the ancient world whereby you could rent rings for special occasions to put on this appearance of greater wealth, much like uh, you know, renting a tuxedo uh, today or something like that. And it wouldn't be like you know, the pinky ring, you know, just one ring on one finger. I mean, we're talking about just uh, rings layered on, on every finger of, of the hand. The more rings, the greater the wealth. This extravagance you see in the way you would speak and it would become clear uh, that you were a man or a woman of means whatever the case may be and so this guy comes in and man he's decked out and it's obvious that he just has a lot of money or he's powerful he's important you you get the idea and so you know there you go and you usher him down uh to the front and you say hey jenny i need you to move you know i need you out of here i'm going to set this guy right here chris you're gone you know uh, you guys are out of here uh, we're going to set this guy and his crew right here in the very best uh seat you know and in contrast another man uh, comes in and his clothes are tattered uh, you know maybe they're they're patched. I mean, he's tried to clean himself up, but I mean, it's obvious. He's just, he's a poor man. He's impoverished. You know, the van from the homeless shelter uh, dropped him off. And so you're like, hey, buddy, you can just stand back here, you know. Uh, or if you want to sit down, just have a seat on the floor or something, you know. Uh, what a revelation. What illumination. It's incriminating evidence of deep carnality among Christians. It's a demonstration, James says, of evil thoughts by the partial or biased actions. And it shows that we care more for appearance than what's happening in the heart. We place more value upon the man with riches when God values all men the same. Do you remember 1 Samuel chapter 16? For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And again, guys, partiality is generally more of a revelation of carnality within us. Uh, we favor the rich over the poor because we believe they can do something for us that the poor man can't. The motive for partiality is self-centered, you see. And listen, when you read through this illustration, the problem isn't that they treated the rich man so great. You know, had they treated the poor man with that same kind of enthusiasm and hospitality, everything would be fantastic. Or had they each been offered a place to stand or maybe a spot on the floor to sit, taking for granted that the venue was full, well, that's fine too. But it's the comparison, it's the contrast in treatment that presents the problem of partiality. Listen to me. Aren't you glad that we serve a God who is impartial? Do you understand what I'm saying? Who doesn't value one over the other on the basis of ethnicity uh, or nationality or, or, or gender maybe. You know, whatever the case is, the social construct of society. But that in reality, salvation is available to all equally. Amen. Right? For God so loved. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. For God so loved, you know, enter your ethnic group. 
for God so loved, you know, enter your economic uh, layer. You know, aren't you so glad it doesn't say that? But that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And again, for whoever, anybody here qualify as a whoever? I mean, that's an every hand in the building kind of response. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Come on, somebody. So when we show partiality, we represent God unfairly. You see that? In a way that's not true to who he is in reality. You can write it down and read it later. It's Romans chapter 2 and verse 11. For with God there is no partiality. Now, Look at verse 5. He says, Listen, my beloved brethren, has not God chosen the poor of this world uh, to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? Now, I should probably point out the fact, uh, the obvious fact, that James is not speaking categorically, okay? Uh, There are incredibly godly people who are rich. There are incredibly ungodly people who are poor. But the principle in play, generally speaking, is that riches can be an obstacle to the kingdom of God. Jesus put it plainly in Matthew 19. He said, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Well, because it's more difficult for the rich to see their genuine need. Do you understand that? To recognize the poverty of their soul. Listen, if I have everything I want, you know, if I don't really have need of anything, then why, why look to God? Why turn to God? What do I need from God? Now, obviously, scripturally, we can explain that, right? Because uh, Jesus, because God is, is focused on the heart, the poverty of the spirit. It's the soul of man, not the, it's the spirit, not the material aspects. And, and, and we're all, uh, all have sin and fall short of the glory of God. But this is the rationale of the natural man. I don't need anything. I'm good. Why should I turn to God? Now, the poor, on the other hand, readily recognize their need. They're open to a message of hope, the promise of eternal life, which is readily available to all, but most eagerly accepted by those who are looking for more than what this life has to offer. Does that make sense? Look, you might do a quick search in your Bible later if you want a little homework. Verses that speak to God's heart going out to the poor and the fatherless, those who are uh, oppressed. Guys, they're not in short supply. Um, So in despising the poor, we so often turn away from the one who's open to the message that, that we have to bring them. You know, the Bible teaches that Jesus himself was a poor man. And it's not that, uh, you know, his heavenly father didn't meet his needs or provide for him. But you remember he was talking and he said, look, you know, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But look, I don't even I don't even have a place to lay my head and I don't know where I'm going to sleep tonight. 
Now, had you met Jesus when he was ministering on this earth, I just, I promise you that there would have been nothing in him that you've seen physically or somehow would have been lured to him because of who he was materially. It just, that wasn't, that wasn't his thing. Guys, think about it. He was born in a borrowed stable. He spoke from a borrowed boat. When he fed the 5,000, he fed them with a few loaves and fish that he borrowed from a young boy. He borrowed a coin to illustrate a truth. He borrowed a donkey to ride into Jerusalem. He borrowed a room to celebrate the Passover. He died on a borrowed cross. Guys, that cross wasn't intended for him. Originally, it was Barabbas, you remember? And then he was laid to rest or buried in a borrowed tomb. It was Joseph of Arimathea's. And he was despised and rejected by the religious leaders of his day. Yet he's the very glory of God. As John said, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Think about that. It's no wonder then that he rebuked those leaders saying, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Do what's right, not what's biased, not what's partial, not what appears outwardly, circumstantially, but so often we make the same mistake. We dishonor the poor man. Now, what does it mean when it speaks of the poor being rich in faith? Well, listen, it, it's quite simple. Listen, the rich might trust God, but the poor must trust God. The poor will generally have a much richer faith, more abundant faith, because they've had to trust God for everything. He says, do not the rich oppress you and drag you into courts. Now, uh, this was a custom that was readily practiced in James' day. If you owed a debt, someone lent you money, uh, they saw you on the street, they could grab you right then and there. And you see this happen in the book of Acts. You remember when Paul uh, delivered that demon-possessed girl and those guys, they just grabbed Paul and Silas immediately and they took them to the magistrate to, to have them set in a trial right then. Well, the rich could do this if they'd lent you money. They could grab you, take you, and, uh, and if you could not pay them back right then and there, they would put you in a debtor's prison, Okay. And so James is saying, look, you're showing, and what is it? Because it's the love of money. For the love of money is a root of all kinds, of, is the root of all kinds of different, right? And so all these things are happening because of the love of money from the self-seeking, uh, how do you say, motive. And he's saying, you're showing partiality toward the very one most likely to oppress you. Why would you do that? Now, guys, He's not saying that we should show partiality against the rich either, okay? Uh, nor is he saying that we should favor the poor over the rich. The idea is that of a just, fair, equitable, impartial attitude toward everybody, okay? And in verse 8 we read, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin, uh-oh, 
and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So where's this turn coming from if you really fulfill the royal law? Where's well, because James is anticipating some kickback. You know, well, you, why are you, why are you, you know, uh, lambasting me? Why are you uh, coming down on me? All I'm doing is, is fulfilling the law to love my neighbor as myself, you know, as the way I'm treating this rich person. I'm just loving on them as, as the law tells us to. And James says, well, listen, if you're really doing that, that's fantastic. But by only showing this kind of enthusiasm and hospitality toward the rich and not the poor, you're not doing that. Okay, you're being partial, and that's sin. Now, why is you shall love your neighbor as yourself called the royal law? Well, I mean, one thing we can say right off the bat is that it was decreed by the king of kings, right? But number two, I lean a little more toward this, is that because this law rules over every other law. You understand that? You remember when Jesus, they were asked, what is the greatest law? And shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. He said, the second is like it, on par with it. And that is, you are to love your neighbor as yourself. He said, on these two hang all the law and the prophets. In other words, if people just did this, if they just loved others the way they uh, love themselves, there would be no need for any kind of moral or civil law. There'd be no need for having to tell people what was right and what was wrong to others because all of it is summed up in loving God and loving others. Therefore, as Paul would say uh, later uh, in the book of Romans, love is the fulfillment of the law. You want to know what's right? What, What does love dictate? Okay, all the way back in the book of Leviticus 19, God was laying this edict down that they weren't to respect the poor, meaning don't give them favor just because they're poor, nor were they to honor the rich or the mighty. In other words, don't give someone favor because they have money or because they're in a powerful political position. Whatever the case may be, what is right is right regardless of who's involved in the matter. Does that make sense? Okay, in verse 10 he says, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. And here it is. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And so the warning is against selective obedience. Do you see that? You know, as if I'm minimizing my guilt... He's essentially saying, look, you're either guilty of breaking the law or you're not. You can't say, well, you know, this is a big deal. You know, murder is a huge, a huge offense, so I won't do that. But, you know, have a little extramarital fun, adultery, that's not that big of a deal. And so uh, I'm going to disregard that law. Listen, he says the same law that says that you're not to murder also forbids adultery. Guys, you realize that I might have a chain. Let's, I, don't, I don't. Let's say I have a chain, 
And, uh, you know, I just decide to break one link. Well, it was just one link, but I've broken the chain nonetheless. Does that make sense? And James is using these fairly obvious examples to kind of show the absurdity of inconsistent obedience. The law is a body, the body of the law. Now, if someone, and I don't recommend this, but if someone were to punch me in the face, uh, you know, they, perhaps they didn't violate or hurt every part of me, but my body has been hurt just the same, okay? There's either been a violation or there hasn't. There, there's nothing in between. And guys, here's the hard lesson. It only takes one sin to be found guilty before God. In other words, you've either sinned or you haven't. And the truth is, we don't sin and then become sinners. That's the way a lot of people think. That, you know, the first time they sinned, they became a sinner. That's not true. You were already a sinner. You proved it the first time you sinned. Does that make sense? Remember that sin nature that we all inherited in Adam? We were born, that natural birth. We were born in sin, and we validate that. We ratify that. We verify that. The first time that you were there in the crib, and there was nothing wrong, but you just started crying anyway, we call that a liar. <laughs> you may not have known it. You weren't sure what it would be. You, you, you were fine, but you decided you were going to cry. You liar. <laughs> right? And he says, so, so speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty, the law of Christ, the law of love, doing unto others, treating others the way you want to be treated. He says, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Uh, question. Quick show of hands, okay? I need some honesty, I need some vulnerability, I need some transparency here. Who here could use a heaping helping of not only the mercy of others, but the mercy of God? Okay. <laughs> Jesus said, be merciful just as your Father also is merciful. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, you will be forgiven. Give, it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your bosom. Here's the key. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Now this last portion, give and it will be given to you, pressed down, shaken together, overflowing and all of that, it's often used within the context of money. And I'll be honest with you, the application is there. You can't outgive God. God won't be a debtor to man and all of that. But can I tell you that the true interpretation has nothing to do with money. It has everything to do with mercy. Okay? If we desire mercy, then we should be merciful. It's the principle of sowing and reaping in effect. And uh, who's closing for me? Abby, come on up. Our belief will control our behavior. 
And the Christian should be marked by consistent courtesy and compassion. So if God has shown compassion toward you, then you should show compassion toward others. Blessed are the merciful, right? For they shall receive mercy. Let's bow our hearts. God, we thank you that your mercies are new every morning. And God, I pray that we would never take your mercy for granted, but that we would accurately, appropriately reflect your heart uh, to those around us, God, that you'd make us more like Jesus. And I, and I pray that your uh, love would pour forth from us that others might be drawn to you in us. And Lord, we just thank you for, for putting us in check today. Uh, God, that, that we be careful to uh, honor each individual equally and represent you appropriately.